If I tell you to visualize a shiny red apple or a hairy, grinning chimpanzee, what do you actually see? Does it appear before you in your mind? Or is it kind of fuzzy? Or might you see nothing at all? Today, we're talking about aphantasia, a condition many people have without realizing it's even a condition, where they lack a mind's eye, the ability to visualize or picture something mentally. We're welcoming Serena Poang, a college student whose piece in the New York Times opened a lot of eyes about aphantasia, no pun intended. What do you see in your own personal mind? And might you be surprised to learn that's not what others experience? Join us for all of this in today's Baggage Check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about who would win between a humidifier and a dehumidifier. So on to today's guest. I'm pleased to welcome Serena Puang, a Yale student, so close to my heart, and a journalist whose own experience of aphantasia was something she lived with without knowing about it all her life, until the startling realization a couple of years ago that this was a thing, and that most of the world saw things very differently than she did. She researched and wrote a piece for the New York Times about it, incorporating her own experience, and I have been looking so forward to talking to her about it. So, Serena, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I loved your piece. You wrote a New York Times piece about your experience of aphantasia. A couple of years ago was when the piece came out. And I know in the piece you said that when you were a kid, you noticed that maybe there were little signs that you saw things a little bit differently than other folks. But it wasn't something that necessarily you thought twice about. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things that you can really put it together in hindsight. But when it was happening, it was just kind of like, oh, whatever. So I remember like my dad is really good at directions and my mom is terrible. Like Mm -hmm. she would get lost on the way home from church and we would go every (laughs) week, right? She'd be like, oh, I found a new way home from church. And it was really just that she took a detour. And my dad would always talk about these mental maps of the city Mm -hmm. that he was keeping in his mind. He'd be like, well, you just consult your mental map. And I mean, I didn't have a mental map and apparently my mom did not have one either. So I was just like, oh, that's just my dad, right? Or my friend would talk about how when he watched a movie, he could rewatch it in his head afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just was like, well, like that's just him. So it's not that I didn't know that some people could visualize. I think that it's more that I thought the proportions were kind of flipped. So it's like, two to five percent ish of people have aphantasia can't visualize Mm -hmm. can't see anything in their minds and the rest of the people can see something it's a spectrum but i thought it was that like you know a very small percentage of people could see something and everyone else was just kind of vibing and Mm -hmm. i think that as i grew up the kinds of verbiage that you learn because just like people will talk about things and we all assume that we're all talking about the same thing right i mean i grew up in a time where everyone and their mom was making a book to movie adaptation there were just Mm. a billion of them and so Mm -hmm. the first one i really remember was the hunger games was being adapted and they announced the cast and jennifer lawrence was cast as katniss everdeen and Mm -hmm. so many of my friends were like oh my gosh jennifer lawrence looks nothing like katniss everdeen and i was just like i have never once thought about what katniss everdeen looks like But Mm -hmm. everyone felt so strongly about it that I was just like, yeah, (laughs) doesn't at all. I feel similarly, but like, I didn't care. Right. Like it was just, it was fine. But as I grew up, I kind of internalized these things that people would talk about and I would, I would talk about them too. And I would think that I was like on the same page as everyone, but Mm -hmm. it turns out that that's not the case. Yes. You know, it's so funny because I do think, especially growing up when you're a kid, when you're an adolescent, there is this element to just kind of assume or just tag along with what everybody else is saying and like, oh, they're just saying that. And I guess I'll agree with that. 
And in reality, there was something kind of qualitatively different about how you didn't see anybody when you read the book in your mind, how you didn't actually have a situation where this is what I pictured of this person, but you're a kid, you're a teenager, whatever it might be, you don't actually really realize just how different it is. So the moment of truth came for you when you were studying Chinese characters, right? Is this right? And your roommate or your friend was kind of talking about how to how to help study, basically, how to visualize these characters, how to see the differences in them in your head. And it seems like that was something of an aha moment. Although, did you realize right away, okay, I'm going to Google this and figure this out? Or did it kind of take you a while to realize that aphantasia was a thing? So I had a friend my first year. She's a genius. Like, I think a lot of people are brilliant here, but not many people are geniuses. My friend is a genius. So I had placed into level three heritage Chinese. She had placed into level five Chinese non-heritage. She's white. And every day in Chinese classes, we do this thing called the shell call, which is a like a little quiz. And they quiz you on the vocab words of the day. And it happens every single day. In Chinese class, where it's a dictation quiz, basically, like they'll read you a sentence and you write it down in the characters. Mm-hmm. And I studied for hours. I'm not exaggerating when I say I would just like sit there and write the characters over and over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. I would get to the class and I would hear the dictation sentence and I would just be like, "Huh, I don't know how to write that." And I was consistently getting like C's maybe on the the quizzes. It wasn't a huge deal. They're not like worth a ton. But like I was a first year. I'd never gotten a B in my life. I was scared. I was like, why am I getting C's on these dictation quizzes when I am in fact working really hard to Mm -hmm. do this? And my friend was getting like 100%. So I was just like, okay, what are you doing that I'm not doing? Because you don't study that much. Well, first Mm -hmm. of all, she's just good at learning languages. But she... She was just like, yeah, I just like visualize the characters in my mind. And I was like, you do what with the, the who? And <laughs> she was like, yeah, I just like visualize the characters. Uh, she's actually the friend at the end of the feast. She visualizes every word that is spoken mm-hmm. to her. So, of course, she just visualizes the characters. Um, and I told her that I've never visualized anything. I'm like, I don't really know. Like, I've heard people say things, but I've just never done that. And she just like very casually said to me, oh, yeah, so your mind's eye is blind. And I'm like, my what eye? Like, it just didn't make any sense to me. And she was just like, oh, yeah. And she like talked to me about um, this book by Oliver Sacks and um, how he had studied aphantasia and like all of this other stuff. And I was just like, OK, I guess. And I went home and I actually remembered that my other friend from home had sent me a video entitled. I have aphantasia and you might too and not know it or something like that. (laughs) And it was just like, this made me think of you. And I was being a bad friend that week and did not watch the video. I just was busy or something. I had not watched it. But then I like kind of made the connection like, oh, wait, maybe these two things are the same thing. I should just go watch this YouTube video that's like already in my like text messages. And I watched it and I was like, it basically runs you through that exercise where they ask you to close your eyes picture an apple and mm-hmm. they ask you like they describe this apple right they're like it's shiny and red it's got this stem it's got a green leaf on it it's a fuji apple or whatever and then they ask you on a scale from one to ten how vividly you can see it one or like zero i guess being that like, you can't see it at all it's just black and ten mm-hmm. being that you can see it like almost as vividly as if you were just seeing it in real life Mm-hmm. And I just thought this was like the most nonsensical question because I'm like, well, obviously the answer is one mm-hmm. because no one can see anything or like some people, I guess, can see something. But like, I didn't think of it as a spectrum. I was just like, what do you mean? Like, most people don't see anything. Like, why is this a video? Mm-hmm. And then they were like, yeah, most people can see something. And I was like, what? <laughs> most people can see something? Like, that's crazy. And that kind of started it. I was like, then I fell down the, the Google rabbit hole, in which I was like looking through all of the, yes. the videos and started like Googling these different things, asking people around me if they saw something and just started realizing like, oh my gosh, this thing that I've thought for like my whole life was like really niche is actually the norm like most people 
can see something Mm -hmm. and in a way that I didn't really understand it and it was a journey (laughs) yeah yeah it's so striking too and probably everyone is on a spectrum and so there are people who probably see things that are outliers. They're so amazing. They're the tens and they can, it might as well be right in front of them, almost like a hallucination. And you were thinking kind of, as you said before, that maybe it was flip-flopped, that most people couldn't really have this mind's eye and that it was maybe the ones that could see that would be more unusual. You know, I'm so struck by it too, because I look back at my early career And I'm an anxiety disorder specialist, so I've always tried to help people with visualizations and all these different tools and mindfulness tools and cognitive behavioral tools of being able to calm the body and the mind. And there were several years of me doing visualizations with large groups, maybe a speaking gig for stress management or these kinds of things, or with my students or illustrating certain concepts. And me not realizing there are some folks who fundamentally can I do a visualization? And I I have to think to myself, what were they thinking during that time? You know, if I'm walking through like a class of 100 students through some sort of calming visualization and two or five or seven of them were thinking, I don't see the water, I don't see anything. It was probably pretty fundamentally useless, but they wouldn't speak up because maybe they just thought everyone was finding it useless. I talk about in my article about like counting sheep which was always such a nonsensical thing mm-hmm. to me. I was like, you just say numbers. You think about the concept of sheep and say numbers. <laughs> That's super weird. But I've been in those rooms where people are like, like, oh, let's do a guided prayer. And you like imagine that you're on a beach or like you imagine that whatever. Mm-hmm. But when I did them, I felt okay about it, actually. I was just like, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the concept of being on a beach. Or like, I think about the feeling of being on a beach. But I didn't realize that people were seeing the beach like that they could go there that whenever we were doing this we were having a fundamentally different experience and yeah since I've found out whenever I do have different situations in which I'm like either writing or like when I have gone to therapy like starting therapy with a new therapist talking about oh yeah uh, by the way I do not visualize cannot visualize will not visualize so if you're like strategy requires that that's not going to work because I don't do it. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. like just helpful information to know. Yeah. And for you to be empowered too. And I imagine there might be some professionals that aren't familiar with aphantasia either. And so mm-hmm. they're thinking, what? <laughs> and I think that's part of this larger issue here because it's not spoken about that often. There are so many people walking around not realizing this, you know, and I think that's something we can get to this idea of how should we educate people? How should we talk to people? I mean, I'm struck in your case, it obviously, I can't imagine that it hindered you. You're obviously a very high achieving person. Do you think in some ways, maybe other cognitive skills developed even more finely for you, more significantly, because you needed to compensate for this lack of a mind's eye? Like compensating or like, having other cognitive abilities be like above average or something but I do think that I found ways to do it differently so for example I find that I remember things audially way better than Mm -hmm. anything else and so like when I took AP Human Geography we memorized continent maps so they would give us a map that was of Africa just the entire continent of Africa and one of them was filled in. So it would show you like Egypt and Gambia and all of the countries. And then on the day of the quiz, they would show you the map and then you have to fill it in with all the country names. And we did Mm -hmm. all of the continents. And I kind of just went through and would like remember things about the shapes of the countries. So I would be like, okay, there are four guineas in the world Mm -hmm. so like I would just be able to remember like okay there are four of them where are they or like okay the top of Africa if you take the first letter of every country it spells out the word male like m-a-l-e and so I would write in like m-a-l-e and then fill in the country names and so I did this like really elaborate (laughs) shenanigans in which I was like okay so first you have to remember this then you have to remember this and then just okay, the like little squiggly one over here is this one. And I would like come up with all of these different ways 
to kind of remember the countries. And then I remember a professor mm -hmm. walking by and watching me puzzle out this whole map. And he was just like, wouldn't it be easier to just look at it and remember? And no, it, like, I was just like, I don't know what that means. That would not help. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I think that yeah. it might be studied differently. And I just remember things in words, which is, again, kind of goes back to what you're saying about how it's like really difficult to know. Because when I describe some of the ways that I learn or the ways that I study people who do have a mind's eye that they see things they would say like, yeah, I do that too. They kind of view the way that they see the world as so inextricably linked from like the way that they're learning or the way that they're remembering that they can't conceptualize mm -hmm. the fact that somebody else would do it in a different way. So yesterday I was actually right. having a conversation with some friends and they were like, well, how do you know what's in your kitchen? So like I was facing away from the kitchen. They're like, if you don't visualize, do you not know mm -hmm. what's in your kitchen? I'm like, so of course I know what's in my kitchen. I put it there. We bought those things and I know what's in there because I see it every day. And he's like, well, can you describe it? I'm like, yes, I know what's in there. Like here is the microwave and then we have a little table and then we have a cart that was expensive, but we have no shelving. We have cabinets that they stop before you would hope that they do. Then we have a sink that has no garbage disposal because mm -hmm. of course it doesn't. We have, you know, a stove mm -hmm. that's white and small a little bit smaller than my last apartment we have a sh like a short fridge you know like I, I was able to describe it and he's just like but if you're not seeing it mm -hmm. how can you know I'm like I think there's a difference between knowing and seeing the thing but he thought of remembering and seeing the thing as the way that he remembers and so to him I'm like, right. he's just like how can that be but to me I'm just like well like I've never done it any other way. Lots of people talk about me discovering aphantasia as like, oh, you discovered that you have no mind's eye. I'm like, no, I've always known that I do not see things. Really, the thing that mm -hmm. happened is like, I discovered that most people do and try to wrap my right. mind around that. Right, exactly. Because how you didn't see things was mm -hmm. your normal. It really was your normal. And I think so many of us, you know, there are people that have perfect pitch. There are people who can see extra hues of color. You know, I think probably so many aspects of the senses are on a spectrum. There are people who are super smellers and all these things. And I think our reality is how we are used to it. And it's kind of mind blowing to imagine that other people are seeing things completely differently than we see. I mean, it brings to mind some of those things that always go around online. Is this dress blue or gold? Or is this voice saying Laurel or Yanni? In reality, there are so many differences in terms of our perception of the world that Honestly, I found it kind of beautiful in your piece because you sort of ended it in the sense that we don't want to take for granted what we do perceive, that maybe other people don't, and that we all are uniquely individual mm -hmm. in terms of yeah. that. Yeah, and I think that it really changed the way that I think about disability and accommodation because um, mm -hmm. like I I went through this like period where I was just really hyper aware of the fact that I don't visualize and other people do. And I think that it made me feel upset for a while. Like I don't anymore, but in like right as I was mm -hmm. finding out, it was like, I was just starting Yale. It was like my second semester here. I was feeling kind of out of my element. And on top of it, I found out that this thing that my brain does not do, everyone else's does. And I was just like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, like, am I like really missing something? And it was hard. Because it was just like, yeah. well, like, is that why I'm not doing well in my class? Like, is that why I'm like, you know, it's like really easy mm -hmm. to attribute all of those things. But as I reported the piece, I like talked to Adam Zeman, who discovered aphantasia. And he's pretty insistent that it's not a learning mm -hmm. disability. And I'm just like, but I am not learning well. <laughs> like, I was just like, you know, I mm -hmm. had this really intense conversation with him. And he was just like, well, essentially, he was like, Serena, you're at Yale. Um, have you considered that maybe you're just not good at the thing that you were trying to learn? Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. is just a you thing and not an aphantasia thing. And no, I had not considered that. I was like, I was a bold little first. I was just like, no. Um, but when I thought about it more, 
you know, I was able to go through my classes and I, my professors were very accommodating and helping me do things, which I think was really helpful. Just like the assumption at Yale that, oh, if you are here, then you must be smart and you must be able to learn. And if for some reason you are not learning and you are doing your like earnest best, there must be some other problem. It must not be that you're not smart, but that there's something else going on and we should look through it. Like my professors were really nice about that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I had friends who were not at Yale, um, who I think are smarter than me, honestly, and they weren't getting the same kinds of accommodations. And some of them do have learning disabilities that like are registered through their university mm-hmm. offices. And it really made me see that, like, you know, I think that aphantasia is not a learning disability because we as a society have decided that visualization is not something that is absolutely the way that you have to do it or at least in my experience in my growing up in my elementary classrooms we didn't do visualization exercises we didn't do visualization Mm -hmm. to learn learning like to learn to read to learn like a lot of these basic skills and because society has decided that it's okay if you don't know how to visualize it's not a disability but for other Mm -hmm. people for whom like their disability is something else that society has decided no like you must be able to do this then it is a disability and I'm like well that line is so fluid Mm -hmm. like I used to think that like the line was oh they're like people who have learning disabilities and there are people who are not those people and I was like I'm firmly not those people and grappling with this whole aphantasia thing made me realize this line is so arbitrary if the line was drawn somewhere else, or like mm-hmm. even if I just lived somewhere different, like if I lived in one of those school districts where they teach visualization as essential to learning, right. maybe I would feel very differently, you know, and maybe I would have not succeeded as yeah. much. Or if my professors were like, no, you have to do it this way, then like, you mm-hmm. know, maybe I wouldn't have. And I think that it's really just, it's not the actual brain difference that disables you, it's society that disables you. It's society that makes you feel like the way that you're thinking, mm-hmm. the way that you're learning, the way that you're being is not good because it's not the way that most people do it. I mm-hmm. feel really grateful that for the most part, I've had a really good experience. Like there have been those, <laughs> there have been times where it was not great, but for the most part, it's been fine and I've been able to thrive. But it's, I think it's a really big wake up call to just be like, oh, wait, you know, it just so happened that we've decided that this is not a super important skill. And like, if it's not a super important skill, then it's okay. But I'm in a bunch of Facebook groups now for people that have aphantasia. Uh And I think every other day, there is someone who's like, I'm 50 years old. And I just realized that I have aphantasia. And my -hmm. life is like crumbling around me. Like, I'm just like having this whole, they're thinking through all of the things that they weren't able to do as kids or as students and rethinking the way that it was presented to them and like it's not to say if it's right or wrong like some people think that they like like I would have passed geometry if I could visualize like I would have been able to Mm -hmm. do this and I think it's always easy to speculate or whatever and it's easy to blame something else um and like I think that's part of why Adam Zeman was so insistent that like oh it's not a learning disability he like didn't want it to be stigmatized But I'm like, I think the same way that we don't stigmatize not being able to visualize is the way we should treat other learning differences. Like we should just treat it as something that's just like, oh, like you got to learn a little different, but that's okay. Right. Because, yeah, that line is so subjective about, okay, this is the category of learning disorders and you're either in it or you're not. And in reality, I think so many of us are somewhere on various spectrums in terms of qualitative differences and quantitative differences about how we learn. In an ideal world, we would be able to really gear the individual learning to each person. And we realize, okay, so for the visual learners, here's this. For the people who learn better while moving, here's this. And I tell my students that all the time, that when you're encoding the information, do it in different ways and see what works best for you. And honestly, encoding information in different ways is good for us individually. You know, if we can each encode it in two or three different ways, I say, make a song about these symptoms or, you know, read these things out loud or draw a chart, do different types of encoding. 
Because I think there is so much stigma with learning disabilities in general, and maybe someday we'll have a different model where we can really just zoom in a little bit better on individual differences, that it's not this black or white line. You have this or you don't, because everybody does have so many individual differences. I am curious, so does anyone else in your family then share this. I mean, it sounds like your father had always been like, hey, a mental map. Clearly, he doesn't have aphantasia. But is there some thought that it's genetic? Do you see it kind of running in your family a little bit more extended? Yeah, it is thought to be genetic. And my sister Mm -hmm. has it also. Um, Both my parents say Mm -hmm. that they can visualize. And when I published in the New York Times, uh, my family in Taiwan and Malaysia read the article and Mm -hmm. so when I was on my gap year I lived in Taiwan with my mom's family and my aunt brought up the article to me she's like oh yeah I read your article in the New York Times and she's like yeah and she's like yeah and I was uh, talking to your cousin about the article because I didn't really get it and I was like well why not she's just like because that thing that you wrote about the thing that you think is like isn't that just everyone? I'm like, no, you just have it too. Like, <laughs> people, they're just like, why are you worried about this? It's so normal. Because it's like, you also do not see the things. You do not stare at trees, like slices of tree and hallucinate. Yes. And welcome to the club. But <laughs> for other people, it's like a real novelty, right? It's like, it's a whole thing. My cousin had told her that like, yeah, she can see the things, right? Like she can visualize the whole book that she was reading and just look at it in her mind during tests. And that's just a, yeah. a different thing that she can do that the rest of us not. It's so funny, the word hallucination, because really, I mean, you get to a certain point and, you know, I've had the experience sometimes of waking up in the middle of the night and for the first split second when I wake up, ooh, there's a shape on the ceiling because I'm half asleep and... I think at some point we can almost start to view seeing things obviously become a problem at some point when somebody really is seeing something that's not there. And it's so funny that your aunt put it that way. You know, of course, I don't hallucinate when I'm looking and seeing things. And I just think it's so striking. It kind of reminds me of the therapy process in general, as in people coming in and talking to a therapist and realizing that the way that they have always known things to be true not everybody shares that, you know, and I see that all the time with people who grew up a certain way and their parents did this and they assumed that this was how most families behaved or they assumed that this is how everybody felt when they first woke up in the morning or they assumed that everybody had these cognitive things going on. And it's really illuminating and empowering to say, actually, let's look at the ways that it doesn't have to be like this or just that it is different and you can understand that, you know, to be able to understand that the water that we're all swimming around since birth is our particular water and we're used to that water. And then suddenly we say, whoa, somebody else's water that they're swimming around in is totally different. And it's kind of empowering, but I also imagine there's a sense of mourning a little bit too, like the folks that you mentioned in the Facebook group, how I imagine it's kind of sad to think, hey, maybe I had difficulties in geography class and I never knew why. And and now there's a name for this. And I wonder what else, though, I was having an unduly hard time with that nobody was there to help me and say, hey, maybe we should do it this way instead. That That's sad to me, that sense yeah, of mourning. Part of it is like when it's framed to you as super important. So like one thing that... Um, people talk about that I I understand is that I didn't realize that people when they had memories they were seeing the memory so like for loved Mm -hmm. ones who had passed away or for people who different different things that they're remembering you can't go back to that that memory Mm -hmm. like you can't Mm -hmm. see it again and so I mean since finding out like I take a lot more pictures now um I I think mm-hmm. about it a lot. But I think that for me, like it was that time that I was like really hyper aware of it. Um, like I'm a writer, I, I'm a journalist and I was in a writing workshop mm-hmm. like really shortly after finding out. And um, the person mm-hmm. who was running the workshop, very nice guy, but he had this little handout about mixed metaphors. And this was back before I knew that metaphors mm-hmm. were meant to evoke images. Like, that is the job of a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I was just like, oh, I, I guess mm-hmm. we compare things to other things. Writing is basically just putting words to vibes. So, I, okay, that's fine. And 
he said that the difference between a good writer and a great writer is attention to detail when constructing sentences and that mixed metaphors are evidence mm -hmm. that a writer is not carefully visualizing what they're writing and if you're not careful you write sloppy and we went mm -hmm. around and read this handout that had all these mixed metaphors in it and people just thought they were so funny and they were all laughing but i didn't know why they were funny and i think it was like because it was so shortly after i had found out I was really aware of the fact that people were all doing this thing that I could not do. And so mm -hmm. as they kept laughing, it made me just feel like really bad and really sad. And I ended up mm -hmm. like excusing myself and like crying in the bathroom because I was just like, if it's the case that people have to be really careful in their writing and that the way to do that is to visualize. And if you don't visualize, you'll write sloppy. Does that mean that I, someone who never visualizes and cannot visualize, will always write sloppy because I can't do it? Mm. And I think that that like, is not the right way to think about it. And since then, like I said, right. I have figured that out um, and like started to see how not visualizing can actually be benefit to my writing. Um, but mm -hmm. for a moment there, like it was, it, there was like a sense of like, oh, there's this thing that people are doing that I cannot yeah. do and that makes me very upset and I think that like yeah like I said I like kind of draw analogies to like finding out that you have a learning disability like whenever you do find that out mm -hmm. a lot of times it's not that you find out that you're having trouble with something it's that like society has made you feel right. like there is something wrong with you or that there's something that you are unable to do but it might just be because like they're not allowing you to do it in the way that would work for you. And like, right. I mean, I was, right. I mentioned that I was a linguistics major for a hot second. In linguistics, you either take syntax mm -hmm. or you take phonology. You have to take both, but most people are either syntax people or phonology people. I was neither, which is why I'm mm -hmm. no longer a linguistics major. <laughs> but when I was taking syntax one, which is like one of the foundational courses for my major, um, it's not great at it. And that might just be a me thing because I'm sure people can do it. Mm. But one of the professors was just like, as you move on in syntax, you just learn to visualize the trees before you draw them. And I was just like, well, mm. shoot, that means that I'm not going to be able to draw these trees. <laughs> and yeah, I'm I mean, out. I was having really hard <laughs> like, diagramming sentences is just yeah. hard. But I think that's partially like a grammar thing. A visualization thing but I just had right. the worst time and people were getting mm -hmm. it I was not getting it and it got so bad that like at the midterm we were like taking the midterm and I was hearing everyone flipping pages in the midterm like being done with the midterm mm -hmm. and I was still like on question one not understanding what to do oh, no. <laughs> and I never had that experience before. I think part of it also is like, yeah, when you're always a high achieving student, like whenever you haven't really had to struggle mm -hmm. with stuff, and then you hit that brick wall. Like I've talked to a lot of students who aren't diagnosed with learning disabilities until like high school or college. Like you're able to skate past, right, and then right. when you're not able to anymore, yes, that is a devastating thing. And I had already talked to people before finding out about my aphantasia, and I was just like what yeah. if this is my thing like what if this is my academic brick wall yeah. and i cannot do this mm -hmm. and it made me really upset i think that yeah like there is that sense of loss whenever you realize like, oh shoot i'm not doing this thing that mm -hmm. doing. but that loss is not inevitable that loss is something that only happens when people expect you to do things exactly the way that they do them and then you realize like you can't do them um I think it's actually really interesting. Mm -hmm. I took a psychology class last year um, called Learning and Memory. And we were doing all these memory tasks. And I found that I don't do worse than other people on them, even when mm -hmm. it's like a visual memory thing. So I don't know if you've heard of it, but like mm -hmm. there are these tasks where they show you like a 3D shape that's made out of cubes. And then they show you a bunch of the shapes mm -hmm. that look different. And then they yes. ask you, like they're like kind mm -hmm. of rotated and they ask you which of the shapes is the same as the first one. I can do that task mm -hmm. and I don't do it slower than other people. 
And I was like, how am I doing it? And I did ask my professor. I'm like, <laughs> I don't visualize and I can do the thing. You said the way that we do it is like you rotate it in your mind, but I'm clearly not doing that. I'm not rotating it. And I'm not a scientist. I don't know how to do it. Like, I don't know how I do it, but I do know that I can. And like, I think that that was comforting. Yeah. And that was like the way that I kind of came to terms yeah. with like my own aphantasia was just like realizing the ways that people are like, oh, well, if you can't visualize, obviously you can't do that. And I'm like, and yet here I am doing it. Um, it's fine. And then right. on top of that, finding the ways that like, if it is kind of presented as something that you have to do a certain way, finding other ways to do it. Yes. Yes. And meanwhile, to be honest, I'm your counterpart because, you know, if somebody says picture a sunset, I've got every detail in my mind, but I have terrible mm. spatial skills in terms of the representation. You know, I'm the one who says, no, I, I think we need to go right here. And everyone else says, <laughs> are you joking? <laughs> we need to go left. The interstate is to the left. And I've always had some kind of deficit in terms of really being able to say, oh, well, if I flip this image, around in my head here's the way or all those little tests of here's what the box looks like when it's flattened you know how which one is going to be an actual box when it's put together or putting together furniture or those types of things even though I can completely visualize and I most definitely don't have aphantasia I have other visuospatial mm -hmm. skills deficits that definitely get in the way and I don't have a mechanical brain in terms of that it's so interesting, once again, how we all have these different levels of everything and you can flip around that image in your head and be fine. And meanwhile, I can visualize it in my head, but there's some sort of kink right. in the process of me actually flipping it around. You know, I know you mentioned in your piece that a lot of folks that have aphantasia might also seem to have prosopagnosia, the sort of face blindness, as we call it. And I definitely have worked with some folks that have that, not necessarily people with aphantasia as well. These people might just have prosopagnosia. That's the notion of not being able to really encode the details of faces. And so these are folks who kind of drive their partners bananas because they're watching a movie and they're saying, wait, why did that guy do that? And their partner says, that's Matt Damon. The other guy is Leonardo DiCaprio. What are you talking talking about. In your experience and some other folks with aphantasia that you've met, do you tend to see some of those same deficits in other people? It doesn't sound like you have prosopagnosia, but do you tend to see that that does run together oh, with other people? I'm not either. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I am that person who is watching the movie and I'm like, who is that guy? Like, what's, who is, what is going on? <laughs> and I think prosopagnosia um, is definitely more studied what people are like diagnosed right. with it. So I'm not about to like armchair right. diagnose anyone with anything. Yeah. But I will say that I did take a test online when I first found uh -huh. out that I have aphantasia and that it's highly correlated. And apparently college students are be supposed to be able to get like 12 out of 25 of the faces because they show you little uh -huh. eggs basically of people's faces in black and white. They right. ask you who it is. And baseline being 12 out of 25 I got one out of 25 so okay not great yeah. did not recognize Donald Trump people were like envy you <laughs> for like hey maybe yeah so did not recognize me. Donald Trump did not recognize Oprah Winfrey the one I got was Barack Obama uh -huh. so thanks Obama uh -huh. I was not super sure about that one but I did pull that one out in the middle but yeah it was <laughs> uh, people yeah a lot of people have Right. It stands to reason that it would really be highly correlated because I'm thinking so much of encoding a face. There's such subtle differences in faces. It's not just like you're always encoding, okay, well, this person's face is very round and their nose does this. I mean, there's such subtle differences that it must really be some visual recall involved for most people. So it stands to reason that it would be highly correlated. But I think you're right. I mean, I knew about prosopagnosia years before aphantasia. And I think there's probably a reason for that in that prosopagnosia really gets in people's ways more overtly from the get-go when it's really extreme. Like, okay, this person doesn't recognize their best friend who lives next door, who they play with every day. You know, something must be off there. Whereas just having a mind's eye or not is more subtle, I think, for people to realize that it's different 
than everyone else. How should we be talking about this though to younger kids? Because I'm thinking of all these kids that might not realize this or that most other people have this ability. I mean, should we be doing more for teachers to learn about this? Should we be doing more in the public space? I mean, I'm sure that's probably why you wrote about it, I would guess. I mean, how can we be advocates for helping people learn their individual differences and know that this is a thing so that they're not getting so stuck in geography class in seventh grade or whatever it might be. I was thinking a lot about this. I've thought a lot about this because people ask me lots of hypothetical questions. Like, would I want to have known earlier on? Or like, would I, Mm -hmm. you know, want to have not had a Fantasia? But like the question of like, would you want to know as a kid? I don't know, because mm-hmm. I did ask other people when I was interviewing for the piece who had a fantasia. I'm like, well, would you have wanted to know? And a lot of people said no, they didn't want to know. And a lot of them mm-hmm. were college students like me at like small liberal arts universities or whatever. And they said, yeah, if I had known, I think it would have been easy to blame things on the fact that I can't visualize. Mm-hmm. But also, I think it's important to to know, to be able to know like the differences. I think that. Um, regardless, one thing is that like teachers should be aware because like two to five percent is substantial. Like if you teach a hundred students in yeah. four years, then you're almost guaranteed mm-hmm. to have at least two, maybe more that do have it. Yeah. And so it's definitely something to be aware of and to normalize and to make adjustments to make sure that people don't feel like they're just not smart because of it. And so, yeah. I mean, after knowing, I've had like really great professors. So um, one of my professors is also my writing tutor, also my thesis advisor. And my mm-hmm. whole angst of like, oh my gosh, am I always going to write sloppy? This is terrible. He didn't know anything about aphantasia before, but I was able to write mm-hmm. in his class about it. It was like, I was in his class when I first found out. And on the last day of class, I kind of wrote this essay that eventually led me to start reporting on this phenomenon and he really just I think about this a lot it's like okay what is the difference like why why did this mean so much to me like I think that the practices that I would say would help people in childhood are just good teaching practices he believed in me he believed that I could be a good writer he believed that I was already a good writer I think that's how you should teach language I think that's how you should teach everything right like drawing on the resources that Mm -hmm. a student already has and then building on those resources having people be aware that like these strategies that work really well for one person like work really well for you might not work well for everyone and so having multiple points of entry for anything that you're doing so like if you're learning to read you're learning a language whatever and then also like taking students seriously whenever they say stuff and really like seeking Mm -hmm. to understand because i think the reason why my writing tutor and i work really well together is because he has asked me so many questions about the way that I am conceptualizing things and the way that I'm like reading, the way that I'm doing stuff. And so like, I, this is a conversation mm-hmm. that I have with my professors whenever it's a new semester, not every single one, but a lot of them, I will kind of sit down with them. Like right now I'm in a TV screenplay writing class. I did go to office hours and mm-hmm. he's like, is there anything I should know? I'm like, so I don't visualize like at all. And it kind of took him aback a little bit. Mm-hmm. He was just like, so when you read the scripts, just happens in a big black box for you? And I'm like, yeah, it does. <laughs> and I think that, like, there's some beauty to that. Like, the writing kind of, mm-hmm. when it resonates with me, it resonates with me not because it's an interesting visual thing. It resonates with me because, mm-hmm. like, the writing is good. Or like the voice is strong or whatever. And so I think I'm more attuned to those things. Right. And so like allowing people to mm-hmm. shine in the way that they do, like it's like, oh, like this kid might not be able to write really strong visual scenes right away. But that doesn't mean that they can't ever. Like mm-hmm. lots of people who have aphantasia go on to do like creative fields. Like my sister has aphantasia. She wants to be a creative writer. She writes fantasy. And so clearly this is not hindering mm-hmm the ability to actually do these things, it just might come a little differently. And also, I mean, sometimes I tell people and they don't really understand it. They think it means that I can't see, which is a different thing. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm not blind blind. I am mind blind, 
which comes with its own mm-hmm. set of things. Like the kinds of accommodations you make for that are different. And so people are out here like acting like I don't see their faces or that I don't see the settings. But mm-hmm. I do. And I can recreate them. I like can tell you what's down my street, even though I'm not looking at, on a window right now. I can do a lot of these things. And so a lot of times people assume that I can't. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I can. I, I do see things. But it's just I sometimes have to do it differently. Or sometimes if I'm not paying that much attention, I don't remember to remember. And so those are important. Yeah. So to clarify the whole black box thing, if I were to tell you, you know, picture your childhood bedroom, you can know in a detailed way, hey, I had this poster up and those types of things, but actually visually, it will be black. Right. So I just don't remember things in a visual way. And I don't Mm -hmm. think about it that way. Like, when it's like, oh, think about your childhood bedroom. Like, I I know what was in my childhood bathroom and I can describe it Mm -hmm. to you in ways that would make you think that we're the same, that we can both see things, which I think is why it's so hard to pin down because you're trying to describe something that is really just a vibe, like what, like no one can experience for you. Like even the people who do visualize, Mm -hmm. I don't think I entirely understand what that means because when they describe it, I'm like, Mm -hmm. that sounds really weird. And I don't think that I really understand it because when I say something, sometimes people are like, oh, I think you're misunderstanding. Like, we can't actually do this. Or like, oh, it's not that we all have photographic memory. That's not even a thing. Like, we can't mm-hmm. do this. And I'm like, really? Like, that seems wrong. Or like people who are not on like the super like high end of the spectrum kind of see like outlines, mm-hmm. but not nothing and not like everything. I don't understand that at all. Like, I'm just like, oh, ugh, I don't know. Yeah. I think you mentioned in in your piece, right, that there was an elementary school teacher that had sort of trained herself a little bit to see little maybe fuzzy outlines. Image streaming. So that's something that was brought up in the original YouTube video that I had watched that like some people can do this thing Mm -hmm. called image streaming and have trained themselves to see. I tried it. It didn't work for me. I talked to Adam Zaman. He said that it doesn't work for most people, but for the people that say it mm-hmm. works, I don't want to discount that experience. I believe them when they say like now mm-hmm. they can see stuff. Um, but for me, I was like, mm, it was black before; it's still black now. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you did such a service for people when you wrote that piece, and just you know, you have such empathy for the full human experiences of individual differences, because I do think that's kind of the driving point here is that we're probably just scratching the surface in some of the differences that people have in terms of perception. And again, it's so much on a spectrum. You know, I'm struck by the fact that my husband has this this pair of pants that, you know, me and one of my kids are like, oh, those are green pants. Those are green pants. And the other three people in my family are like, are you joking? There's no green in those at all. They're purely brown. They are 100% brown. There's not, And it's just one of those things, you know, this isn't even any kind of specific deficit or specific quote unquote abnormality. It's just the perception that's different. And I think this whole discussion today really has resonated with me in the sense that people are living in very unique worlds of their own in some ways. And we can find commonalities and we should find commonalities. But in terms of perception, I think the more that we can understand that people see things differently, then the more we can help other people be able to thrive. And, you know, the kid who's struggling in school, we can maybe have the teacher understand, hey, they just can't picture things this way. Let's do things differently. Or the kid who has a different type of way of learning. You know, some kids learn really, really well when there's physical movement. And they'll remember everything that was said as long as they were playing catch while they were, quote unquote, studying for it. And I think, you know, the human experience is so richly unique for every individual person. And of course, we don't want people to get away from truth. That's a whole nother aspect of, well, I see things this way. And actually, that's not fundamentally true. But in this perception way, I'm just fascinated by it. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to to share your experience. And I can't help but think that there's somebody listening today who has, just like you, always known that they didn't see things, but then 
never realized that other people really did. And maybe it's empowering to to have a name for it and to be able to give it a label and be able to then use it to find other strategies that will work better since they can't yeah, visualize. I definitely think that that's other people finding out um, and writing about it and thinking about it was helpful to me because then I was able to read those articles and feel like I've read all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that mm-hmm. there is like, this thing I really appreciate, which like you're talking to somebody who does have it because a lot of times people, when they have media about something, it's kind of done from the angle of, oh, let's talk about this thing that's like such a quirky little thing for other people. And so they right. have a writer who doesn't have it and they talk to like five-ish mm-hmm. people who do have it. And then they're like, guys, I discovered this thing in which other people don't visualize isn't that crazy Mm. and like the whole thing is just trying to establish what it's like to not visualize to people that do visualize and there was just like a dearth of articles and when I found out a couple years ago Mm -hmm. of like people who did have it talking about what to do from there like where do you go what do you like how do you move on how do you grapple with the fact that once something is gone from your visual sight you might not be able to see it again and how do you deal with this like learning piece how do you deal with this interpersonal piece like what do people do and i think that that's being hashed out on facebook groups as we speak like people Mm -hmm. they talk about different things that they're experiencing like is this something that has to do with aphantasia or is this just me like is this something or this something like that's a conversation Mm -hmm. that people are actively having but when we assume that one person's experience is uniform like even people with aphantasia like Mm -hmm. i've been trying to say very carefully that oh this is my experience this is what i do um but that might not be what other people do because like a lot of people will say like oh yeah like this and this and that and the other and i think it's important to be like okay like everyone's experience even with aphantasia it is a spectrum even with people who yes oh yeah we're the same we both don't do this or we both do that are still going to have variation in their experiences and Mm -hmm when we really just come open and we're like oh okay there are these commonalities like we're both bad at spatial reasoning or like oh we're both good at doing these other things like those like oh does this make a box when it's 3d like i also don't know how to do that i'm just Mm -hmm. like maybe (laughs) i think so but like yeah, yeah i think that that's a really important point that you're highlighting Yeah, and that's why I'm so glad that you lent your voice to us today, because what I didn't want to do is the sort of professorial, here's a condition that let's all talk about and gawk at, you know, I think it's so powerful to actually hear your experience. And that's why I loved your piece, too, because it wasn't just here's my experience, but here's also how I can educate people about this idea. And there is variation within it. And here's what we're still learning. And, you know, thank goodness for those communities online where people can hash it out and people can connect. And it sounds like a really powerful thing to be able to connect. That's certainly an advantage of having social media groups that wouldn't have existed before is that people can feel less alone and they can understand each other better. And so I really thank you for taking the time today, Serena. Yeah, thank you for reaching out. Thank you for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier and this has been Baggage Check with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast to give your take on upcoming topics and guests. And why not tell your chatty coworker where to find us? Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Danielle Merity, and my studio security is provided by Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care. <laughs>